Before we begin the final word for this week with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, a quick word about Woodstock Cricket Bats, the best cricket bats in the world. And because of their association with us or our association with them, Jeff, we can offer you 20% off the best bats in the world. The best Woodstock in the world. Not the music festival, not the premix bourbon. It's the best <laughs> cricket bats going around uh, the Tour de Force and the Airstream. One, the number one and two best cricket bats in the world by esteemed judges testing blind last year. No idea what bats they were using. They said these are the bats for you. These are the best ones in the world. And they're much, much cheaper than a lot of the big-name bats from the big-name brands. Well, they're cheaper to begin with, and then you apply the discount. So the maths on this, which I like to repeat because I think it's important, is that for a top-line bat in Australia these days, you're being set back the better part of 1200 Australian dollars. It's a lot of money. Well, if you extrapolate what the Airstream and the Tour de Force are worth in Aussie dollars, it comes up to about 700 bucks, so about 375 quid. 20% off that, which is what you get with offer code TFW20, and you're down to 560 bucks, less than half of the 1200 that you might pay when picking a bat up off the shelf for the brands that you know and love and what you see a lot of test players using Oz, for example. Now, the difference here is that all of these bats are, are made with love by hand by John Newsom, who's the, the bat maker to the stars, including now to Josh De Silva, Jeff, the West Indian star who who made 100 in the first test match where he was using the Woodstock a couple of weeks ago. And there are a range of uh, players on the county circuit who are using them this year who weren't using them last year. And there are many more coming as well. There are more on the way. Stephen Finn uses one. Benny Howell, uh, Jack Taylor for Gloucestershire. Joe Leach for Worcestershire. Lots of uh, county players using the Woodstock stick and uh, you can use it too with that Offer code TFW20, get 20% off. Why wouldn't you? You'll be foolish not to. Woodstockcricket.co.uk, the code is TFW20. For the best bat in the world, get one today. Dun, dun, dun. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Season 12, Episode 4. And on this week's show, uh, we are bringing to you a feature interview that we have been planning for some time and finally uh, got around to arranging since she declared that she will no longer be an international cricketer. Anya Shrubsole. Jeff, she's been uh, one of our favourites for a long time on the show. And yeah, great opportunity to do something of an exit interview with her. Uh, she's still going to play domestic cricket, but yeah, her days as an England bowler are done. So yeah, the perfect time to get her on the final word for one of those long chats that we enjoy. We've talked about doing it for a while, at least a couple of years, where we said we should we should uh, do that interview at some stage. But I think the timing has worked out for the best because, you know, now now she'll be in a position where she can look back on things, uh, have that bit of perspective with the feeling of something being concluded. And so all of that is to come on the show today. Uh, we've had some final nerd catch-ups as uh, people are describing themselves on the Discord channel, which I quite like. Uh, Jeff, you went and saw uh, Rosie's show with a bunch of uh, pals on Friday night uh, and on the Thursday evening after the first day of Surrey Somerset, there are a bunch of us in the Beehive there in uh, in South London. So, yeah, nice that uh, our community are getting together and organising it themselves, really. It's not through you and me. It's uh, it's the, the power of the Discord page. This is the best part about it is we don't have to organise anything. We just show up sometimes when <laughs> people have already organised it. That is the perfect way to have a social life. Um, yes. I've, I've, I've aimed to have that kind of social life for most of my adult years and I'll keep it going. I also had an impromptu catch-up with one of our patrons on Friday night where I was meeting a 
a mate who was part of my NCT or our NCT course before when he was born, Max, who's a Welshman and knows very little about cricket. And Max had a mate from Australia who was coming over to catch up with him. So he came along and his friend, so a friend of a friend of a friend, and I walk in the door, and then it's Nick Tewson, who, who who cycled across the Pennines last year for the Lord's Tabs as part of what we were doing with the final word and a member of our um, Discord and uh, patron community. And, and there he was across the table and enjoyed a few beers with him at the at the faltering fullback in Finsbury Park. So uh, there were multiple final word catch-ups over the weekend. Uh, yeah, it's all been very, very social, and hopefully there'll be more of that through the English summer. Oh, and one more point, Jeff, before we move on into the show, is that I, I received an anonymous book in the mail this week. So uh, Daniel and I, uh, I guess it was a few weeks ago now when he was sitting in for you on Storytime, told the story of Alliston's innings where he made, I think it was 140 runs in 40 minutes at Trent Bridge or, or something like that. And um, John Arlett wrote a book about one innings. And I'm not quite sure how this came to pass, but I received this book in the post the other day anonymously, presumably from a final word listener. So um, <laughs> I- I'm glad that, uh, I'm glad that uh, our Storytime activity is inspiring such acts of kindness. Well, okay, I, I don't want to ruin this for you, Adam, but uh, that was me. I, 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 said, I sent you that. That book. makes sense. I think most people probably don't have your address just by listening to the show, but it wasn't entirely my idea. So the idea did come from a patron called Henry Branson who signed okay. up just recently and he discovered that you could get this John Arlott book, this old uh, sort of secondhand copy of this hard-to-find book. He found a listing and it was £7.99. And so he signed up on, on for, for Nerd Pledge and he set his pledge as seven ninety nine, and has reverse engineered a cricket number to relate to it and also told me that he'd done that so that uh, it would match up with the price of the Ted oh. Allenson book and sent me the link to it. So, of course, I, I had to order it um, and it, I'm sure it was seven ninety nine. well spent even though I haven't even seen it yet. Oh, that is wonderful. It, it, people have said on that on that Discord channel that it's the kindest corner of the internet and this reinforces that point. Uh, thank you, Henry. Uh, I look forward to uh, reading uh, Alison's innings at, at some point soon. It's only about 50-odd pages, so I'll, I'll flick through it and give a book review next week perhaps, Jeff. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's worked out beautifully. Um, cheers for that, Henry. You've also got the old Wozler book as well um, that somebody mm. found. So we're developing a final word library, which you know hopefully will be incorporated into the British Library and about 50 years, you know, when, when, when we're considered to be persons of, of great social importance. I'm sure that'll happen. Yeah, we, we also we had a, uh, something in our, in our inbox on, on our Gmail account today, Jeff, offering us uh, like a, a truckload of Wisdom Almanacs from uh, a new patron who is downsizing their collection. I won't say who exactly because uh, they might not want me to reveal that information, but they're getting rid of a bunch of books <laughs> and they've offered us like 40 Wisdoms. I'm like, we will take those. I think they're in, um, <laughs> I think they're in Melbourne, Jeff, so it might be, end up becoming your, your Wisdom collection, uh, yeah. belatedly. Okay. So find room. Put up a shelf. <laughs> In, instead of, um, you know, the furniture built of milk crates, which is what I've had for most of my life, I'll just have <laughs> furniture built of wizards. All right, DC, play the music. Sachin. 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 Take it away, Jeff. Well, this isn't a, a, a regular edition of Happy Birthday Sachin, but this is to mark the fact that it was Sachin Tendulkar's birthday this week. Uh, he turned 49 and that meant that 
it, it's it's like a reverso day on the internet. Every other day on the internet, it's Sachin wishing happy birthday to 15 other people. But on this one day, yeah, everybody wishes happy birthday to Sachin. Everybody who's chasing clout, everybody who's trying to get some retweets or some followers, every cricket social media account desperate for some engagement from that elusive giant Indian audience on the internet. They're like, wow, better put Sachin's handle in a tweet and pop it up and say happy birthday. And gee, they got stuck in. Didn't they ever? I mean, the best way is to get one of your photos stolen by Sachin, and that, that tends to get the same uh, result as um, the fawning, over-the-top, lavish, whatever you want to call it, praise of him. So he turned 49 on the weekend. What's going to happen next year when he turns oh. 50? Oh, there's I mean, going to be so many bad half-century tweets. Oh, yeah. It's going to be, oh, a flawlessly compiled half-century. Can't <laughs> wait to see him go on, blah, blah, blah. I've noticed a tagline, quite an uncomfortable tagline, actually, the god of cricket now appearing in most of these tributes. I didn't detect this before, but it was seemingly everywhere that this weekend. I'm, I don't know how I feel about that, the god of cricket. I actually asked Barat about the origin story of it, and he, he explained that it was from the newspaper that he was working on at the time, the Indian Express in 2010 when Tendulkar made his unbeaten 200 in a one-day international against South Africa. And the Express the next day had a headline that simply said, God, with an exclamation mark, and a a picture of Sachin looking up to the skies upon reaching his double century. And he went on to say that, and this is Barat's words here, you can always make out how close, perceived or otherwise, someone is to Tendulkar by how they refer to him. Master is for people who actually know him, but pretend to know him better than they do. God is for most people who would love to know him, but never will. Sachin Sir is from those who want to suck up in the hope that someone who knows Sachin will someday get a selfie with him. Paji is for all cricketers who played with him or for journalists who'd like you to believe they're in his inner circle. And Tendu is for Mr. Lele, which you just left it at that. <laughs> Mr. Lele uh, being one of the, being one of the, 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 the most well-known uh, Indian reporters, Jeff, who we've had a bit to do with over the years. A, a wonderful freelancer at that, but I, I enjoy that But I identifies one nickname and one mm-hmm. nickname alone for, for Lele. I remember Lele uh, a few years ago when we were in Ranchi when uh, it was hosting a test match for the first time, so 2017, Dhoni's hometown. And Dhoni flashes up on the scoreboard in the corporate box, you know, sunglasses on, looking as cool as ever, of course, having long since retired from Test cricket. And who's sitting next to him? It's Mr. Lele. So uh, he, he's got that kind of relationship with players. And in turn, he can have his own nickname for Sachin Tendulkar, Tendu. <laughs> so maybe the picture where he was looking up at the sky, maybe that was Sachin talking to God. Maybe it was, hello, God, it's me, Margaret, sort of, <laughs> sort of style for, for Sachin. Who knows? But maybe it's less of a big deal in India where there are, you know, billions of gods uh, and therefore yeah. you, anyone can be a god you don't necessarily have to be the god maybe it's the not, god not quite as big a thing as it might be in, in, in other cultural contexts yeah maybe i'm overlaying my western bias there or something like that speaking of cricketers who who, who were godlike in the way they presented uh, cb fry was one of those and we told his story recently on story time too he turned 150 yesterday which was brought to our attention by ross on discord so um yes i think as you put it jeff uh, raise your bat and backflip onto the mantelpiece Yes, well, it's a standing jump backwards onto the mantelpiece. And ordinarily, I wouldn't advocate raising the bat at 150. But if you can jump onto a mantelpiece from a standing position on the floor, <laughs> you can raise it for that alone. Uh, other important things that happened in India, uh, we had a good run out at the non-strikers end of Samiti yes. Mandana um, in the, the domestic T20 comp that they're running over there. KP Chowdhury of Rajasthan did the deed. Yes, more of it. 
legend. We saw Maeve Duma get some words in the almanac, in her own words, actually. She told her story uh, last week. So uh, KP Chowdhury joins a, a club that um, that we have uh, celebrated over the years. Yeah, in the Women's T20 Trophy, and, and that's an interesting tournament to me because that's being... Well, they're, they're really trying to pump that up at the moment. We've got the the not real women's IPL taking place in a couple of weeks' time, Jeff. There was a press release that went out yesterday. So that's an extension of what they've been doing. But they're trying to invest in this domestic trophy comp. So much so, they've withdrawn their NOC, so no objection certificates uh, for all of the Indian players who are scheduled to otherwise be at the fair break international competition starting this time next week in Dubai. So I'm going over for that to do television. Basically, that's... Um, a private equity tournament uh, where there are players from England, South Africa, the West Indies, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, New Zealand, Bangladesh, and then a range of other countries who sit outside of the the main women's championship at the moment, like Thailand and friends of the final word, like Roberta Moretti from Brazil. There are German players, Belgian players, Hong Kong players, you name it. So it's a and some Australians too. I saw Elise Villani was named a couple of days ago as as one of the sort of marquee players, but it's got some absolute guns playing in it and. The idea, Jeff, was that India would be represented through Harman Kaur and Deepti Sharma and a range of other players in, the, in their kind of main first 11. But they've had that pulled because of uh, the Women's T20 Trophy. So mm. you know, I know NOCs don't come easy when you're the BCCI, but it does seem a bit of a shame that they can't be part of what's going to be a real celebration of women's cricket over the next two weeks in Dubai. But at the same time, I suppose we can also embrace the idea that within their own domestic structure, they're trying to take their competitions to the next level. It is uh, interestingly illustrative, though, that from the BCCI that there are long periods where they don't seem to be all that interested in supporting their women's team and then occasionally they are interested in it when it clashes with something else um, and, you know, the, the way they pulled players from the, the second half of the Big Bash and, and so on. Yes. Over the journey, it's been a, a pretty consistent um, failure of forward planning, shall we say. Also in Dubai, we've seen a big change at the ICC uh, this week, Jeff. Wasim Khan has got Jeff Allardyce's job, so the, the boss of cricket, effectively, sitting underneath the CEO, but Wasim Khan will be the man who all the major cricket decisions runs through uh, as of, I think, next month he starts. That's a pretty clever appointment, Jeff, because we know that Wasim Khan was in the frame for the ECB job, assuming that Tom Harrison makes way in the middle of this year, that that seems to be the, the sense of it once these bonuses are paid, that... Uh, Wasim Khan, who was a former ECB employee. He was the chief executive at Leicestershire, which was widely interpreted at the time as being him getting his training wheels to one day be the chief executive of the ECB. Well, the ICC have gotten in first. Yeah, this is this is an interesting one because he was uh, floating around in Pakistan when we were there, sort of on, on a, a few little freelance jobs, I, I, I suppose. He's been talked up in a range of ways he's uh, shuttled back and forth between those countries a bit and um, as you say there was there's certainly a, a strong contingent backing him to be the chief exec of the England and Wales cricket board because because why not you know particularly when they've got such problems with uh, lack of diversity and the need to to really supercharge that movement to diversify cricket in England that was the kind of appointment that would have made sense but um, it's interesting that he's decided to jump 
in a different direction. You know, maybe it's maybe it's a, a safer gig at the ICC. People are, are less likely to get the chop uh, suddenly uh, when they're working at the ICC. They tend to see out their terms a bit more. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, it didn't last long for him at the PCB, did it? I think he was chief executive there for for a couple of years before they effectively got him. So, uh, yeah, it was him, Khan, who, uh, yeah, I think we should try and get him on at some point, Jeff. I reckon uh, Wazim would be open to talking to us and having a conversation about the, the direction that he wants to take uh, with the ICC and, and likewise Jeff Allardyce, the, the new boss of the ICC there in Dubai. On an England front staying there, it looks like Ron Khalifa, who's already a non-executive director on the ECB board. He's got a financial services and, and big tech background. He's been a director at the Bank of England. Well, he looks to be uh, the next chairman uh, by the sounds of things. They've not had a full-time chair for about six months when Ian Watmore resigned late last year. So, uh, yeah, Ron Khalifa, uh, that's been briefed out fairly widely that he's going to move from being a non-executive director into the, the top job there at the ECB. So we'll wait and see on that one. In the other appointments... Uh, the coaching gig or the coaching gigs possibly uh, that's the the main responsibility for Rob Key in the, in the short term we, we talked about Rob's uh, move to become the boss of cricket last week well it looks like they've ruled out Justin Langer some reporting in the last couple of days in the Telegraph which makes sense Jeff like we know from what Rob Key said when he worked for Sky Sports that he didn't think that Langer was a good fit uh, for England coming into the role given uh, what was going on in the Australian dressing room so I'm not surprised to see him have a line through his name uh, but Names we have seen uh, floated are Gary Kirsten, who reportedly might be keen on the test job. Um, how Owen Morgan fits in with the white ball job. Um, Graham Ford's in the mix. He was uh, a trusted ally of Rob Key in his Kent days and previously the uh, the coach at Ireland and Sri Lanka and Surrey. So plenty of experience with this generation of players. Um, uh, according to a couple of reports over the weekend, Simon Kadich has also been sounded out. So look, they've got to make a couple of big calls. Will it be two jobs or one? And then how will they, they place those coaches alongside each other if they do go with two? I couldn't see Simon Kadich doing it um, at the moment. The way things are set up, he's got the ideal situation where he does some coaching in the IPL, which is intense for a couple of months a year, but you know otherwise lets him spend most of his time at home and then you know, dabbles in doing some commentary here and there whenever it suits, when it's convenient. I mean, that, that works out when you've got a family based in Australia, you've got kids to look after. Um, I couldn't see that Langer was ever going to be a fit for England. I think if you were taking that job, it would it would be a sort of stick it up Cricket Australia decision rather than, you know, one that, that he that his heart would have really been in like did he did, I don't know did he finish up his playing career and think wow I can't wait to coach England one day I, I doubt it <laughs> um, he's I think his emotional investment in the Australian coaching job was uh, was was the reason that he wanted it you know rather than just coaching for for coaching's sake and and as for Gary Kirsten I mean, like England have been talking about employing Gary Kirsten as coach for about 30 years I mean it's, <laughs> it, it's like it's like listening to one of your friends who says they're going to quit smoking next year oh yeah yeah no I've got to do it yeah yeah some oh yeah yeah sometimes so yeah after the summer and I'll definitely appoint Gary Kirsten yeah maybe next year maybe early next year maybe maybe I'll take some time off work and you know let myself relax and then I'll appoint Gary Kirsten as coach just do it if you're going to do it just stop talking about it and do it bloody hell yeah, he, he was he was keen last time, wasn't he? And they went the other way with Chris Silverwood. And like the point you make about Langer, it's kind of when Mick Malthouse stopped coaching Collingwood and he showed up at Carlton a couple of years later. Yeah. Um, it just doesn't quite feel right. Sticking with that footy theme, I don't mind the idea of Owen Morgan looking after the white ball group. Whether he remains in the best 11, that's a debating point. We thrashed that out on the show before during the World Cup last year. But 
it seems like it's just his team anyway. Like, why not just formalise it? Just give mm-hmm. it to Owen Morgan. Let him be captain coach. Let him let him be the old fashioned captain coach. Uh, let him do both. Let him be Ron, Ron Brassi of the yeah. England White Ball team. Uh, I know that Brassi only did that for a little him, bit of Carlton, but let him let him be <laughs> Damien Cupido at Girigara, where, where he kicked sixteen goals 16 on, the on the weekend. Week. Yeah, looked good, didn't he? <laughs> Loved it. I wonder where they'll fit Morgan into this. I would assume that Owen Morgan will become the White Ball coach. That's the other point here. So, if Owen Morgan's only going to play for a short while longer there might be some transition they can some cheeky transition they can uh, put in train now but yeah I don't mind the idea of a, a captain coach uh, a bit of a, a bit of a throwback to a, a previous generation to an extent but that's that's the way Morgan's ran the team so wait and see on that front and your point about Cat's well made about he can cherry pick and does it beautifully I mean he's become a, a highly sought after television commentator he was in Pakistan recently but with Channel 7 of course what he does with SEN uh, through the summer is the primary summariser um, and I'm sure that if he was on the open market for other TV work he's coaching the Manchester Originals in the um, in the 100 he wasn't in the IPL this year but I suppose it says a little bit about the authority that Cat has that he was able to pull out of the IPL at pretty short notice on a, on a matter of principle with the way the team was being run so yeah if you've got all of those options and you're so so highly sought after why would you want to take a gig in England as coach where you're on a mm. bit of a hiding to nothing on the other side of it it is a gigantic job I mean if you get that job and you are successful uh, it can set you up for the next 20 years so um, yeah, yeah it's interesting but if you get that job the likelihood is someone will chop your head off within two years um, you won't see yeah. out the full contract and in the meantime you disrupt your entire family life by you know either having to move them to England or being away for you know 10 months out of the year so honestly like it, it's that's the thing about getting to the supposed top of the pyramid is once you're up there it's very easy for everybody else to take a shot at you Good point. Uh, Jeff, let's stay with England for the third round of the county championship. Uh, I feel like I'm kind of stealing Gary Naylor's bit here from The Guardian. That He has that six balls column that he writes each week at the end of a round. But we'll, we'll do a, about six or so uh, talking points from the round that's, that's just finished. You should read Gary on The Guardian website, by the way. Uh, for, for the first time this season, Jeff, all... 18 counties were playing at once and and the weather was sparkling as it has been for the last five or six days. Glorious day today here in North London where I'm recording. So, yes, just to skip through a bit of what was going on in Division 1. Matt Critchley, watch. uh, Not a great week in a big loss to Warwickshire with the ball. He did make 51 runs. The problem was it came across two innings. So, um, after making a ton to start, our man, our county correspondent, we'll get him back on in a couple of weeks, Jeff. Matt Critchley uh, hasn't been able to really pile up the runs. I did, however, hear Mark Butch talking him up on the Wisdom podcast as one to watch for England selection, which is totally cool. Uh, but form an orderly queue behind us. Everyone's welcome on this bandwagon, but remember where it started. Matt Critchley for England on the final word. There was a cracking game at the Oval. Uh, I know that we recorded story time when... I think it was afternoon one, wasn't it, before we had our, our catch-up, but it was like the scorecard read 337 to 308 to 207 to 239 for seven with Surrey uh, winning by three wickets after um, Tom Abel made an unbeaten 150 for the visitors. You'll love to hear that Pete Siddle took six for 51. Jeff still doing the job. Uh, three runs better than his birthday hat-trick figures of six for 54, which has been a nerd pledge on multiple occasions. <laughs> and he's still got the hair going, which I'm very glad to see, the uh, super Bond villain sort of white bleached blonde sort of material. 
Yeah, so Surrey uh, won that game at home. They've won both of their games at the Oval this year. They are top of the pile in Division 1. Uh, did you catch any of the, the Jimmy Anderson return match, Jeff? It was uh, Lancashire playing against Gloucestershire, who never really stood a chance, but they did well to hold on for as long as they did. Hassan Ali took 6 for 47, though, and outshone Anderson and broke the middle stump in half at one stage. Um, <laughs> then with the bat after bowling out Gloucestershire for 259, uh, they made 556 for 7. Maxie's mate, Josh Bohannon, 231 in 467 balls. I know I've been banging away about this guy for a couple of years. He will play test cricket in a couple of months. He will He will be in that test team this year. They can't resist a guy that's making runs with the consistency that he is. He's batting three for Lanks, who are as good as a test team at the moment, but um, I, I reckon they might look at him to open. He made a century opening, I think, against... Uh, Australia A uh, over the winter made a century in the Roses game last year that I was doing so all on him Parky went viral again for the third week in a row I think it is now where he was on a hat trick he picked up I think the second in that sequence was Ryan Higgins with an unplayable I mean you know seemingly week in week out we talk about Matt Parkinson unplayables but another one here and then you know the fact that they've got Saki Mahmood also in that bowling lineup you know with Anderson Parkinson uh, and Hassan Ali they are phenomenal we're just about picking an England team here because we've got Critchley in the middle order Bahannon up top presumably <laughs> Parkinson the spinner yes um, you know Broad and Anderson <laughs> and coming back there's not many to, not many spots to fill yeah maybe Saki being the other quick there they've got Injury problems. Matt Fisher, the Yorkshireman who who uh, who played uh, against the Windies, he's got a back issue that came out today. Robinson's not fit, full stop, but that back spasm's not recovered. Woods had an operation on his elbow. He's not ready till the end of May. Obviously, no consideration for Jofra Archer at the moment, certainly not in red ball cricket. Chris Wokes has got a problem with his knee, I'm pretty sure, right now. So, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it were... Anderson, Broad, Saqib Mahmood for that first test match against New Zealand. But a little way away from that, uh, maybe James Vince could be in that team. Uh, Hampshire flogged Kent. Um, I felt sorry for Kent. They made 601 runs for the match and still got beaten by an innings. But James Vince, uh, I mean, uh, you know, they haven't got a captain. And, well, it could be Ben Stokes, of course. But if they if they don't go with Ben Stokes, I mean, Vince is as likely as anyone else, uh, even though he's not played test cricket for a few years. And a century this week at home against uh, against Kent. Uh, Jeff, into Division 2, one you will absolutely love. All four matches there were decided by an innings or more. And I asked Andrew Sampson about this, whether it had ever happened before. And he threw in there as well that there were two other games in Division 1 that were won by an innings. So six games starting on the same day in this round were won by an innings. There are five days, Samo tells me, where a round of five matches had innings wins in 1911, 1921, 1929, 1932 and 1956. But this was the first time with six and all of the games in Division 2 finished in, in that form. You'll also love to hear that Sean Massoud <laughs> made another... <laughs> that is an exciting stat. Well, that is, I'm, I'm going to mark that one. <laughs> <laughs> What's probably a little bit more exciting statistically is that Sean Massoud has rattled off his second double century in a row for Derbyshire. He's got 611 runs at 152 when you throw in a couple of half centuries at Lords. You know, you think about um, making a thousand runs by the end of May. It's only been done, I think, nine times ever. Three of those were Bradman, 
One was the, the WG Gracie in 1895 that we've talked about before where he, where he managed to achieve that in 22 days. And the most recent batter to get to 1,000 by the end of May was Graham Hick in 1988. But Shah Massoud's got three more games to go and he's got, yeah, what is it, 389 runs to get. He's got to be a decent chance. He made 219 chanceless runs against Leicestershire and they're, they're flogging there. So, yes, yeah, Shah Massoud, what a recruit. And Mickey Arthur. Um, he's got them to, as coach, uh, they're one point off the top. And I don't think many people were, were thinking that Derbyshire would be uh, that close to the pointy end and potentially promotion when doing their their pre-season previews. But yes, yeah, Shah Massoud couldn't get a game. Imam Al-Haq nudged him out when we were in Pakistan, Jeff. But clearly, he's a player that should be in the Test 11. I mean, he made three Test centuries in a row a couple of years ago. Well, you know, put him in our Test 11 with Matt Parkinson, Josh Bannon, <laughs> you know, whatever. We'll choose our own team. Well, he could, he's just about eligible, you know. He spent more than half his life living in England. Maybe he should re-qualify as an England Test cricketer, mm. pull the pin on Pakistan and come over here. Oh, so he could be an England Test opener and get given four Test matches and then get binned off and never play again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very attractive. Speaking of Pakistan, Shaheen Sharafridi got Manus out twice uh, as Middlesex pumped Glamorgan by an innings and plenty. Toby Rowland-Jones, eight wickets. You still got to kind of feel for the bloke, don't you? He had one foot on that Ashes plane in 2017 before um, that stress fracture, having bowled so well against South Africa in his first series. But, you know, what are we now? Five years later, shoulder surgery, knee surgery, you know, stress fractures in the back. He's had pretty much every injury you can pick up along the way as a big quick and still a match winner at age 33. So well played, Toby Rowland Jones. And to finish off, uh, Worcestershire did Sussex uh, by an innings, uh, but. Uh, Chiteshwa Pajara, final word favourite, made his second hundred in a row to start his season down there at Hove. And yes, uh, like Daniel Bell Drummond for Kent, another favourite of ours, a big century in a losing effort. Love the work of Chiteshwa Pajara. He's, he's going to make a comeback for that India-England test and he's just going to really piss off all of those fans who wanted him dropped. <laughs> well, he'll be, in for, he'll be in form and he'll be in England. He'll be here playing. So available if selected, as they say. Uh, Jeff, before we move to our... Uh, Interview with Anya Shrubsoul, we'll, we'll find time for a little bit of... Nerd Pledge! Nerd Pledge. It is the game that we play on The Final Word that we accidentally invented, the reverse quiz, where you ask the questions of us. Here's how it works. People support the show by joining up on Patreon and they send us a contribution. And that contribution is not a normal number. It's not like a coin or a note. It's a specific number because it relates to cricket in some way and we have to work out what that relationship is. For instance, our nerd pledger this week is Ed Bar Sim. Uh, Ed Bar Sim, whose parents really messed that up by choosing to order it that way around because he could have been Ed Simbar. He could have been <laughs> everything the sunlight touches. You know, one day all this will be yours. You smear the thumb across his forehead <laughs> yes. at birth. Ed Simba. Why didn't they do it that way around? Anyway, I'm sorry, Ed, but, but they got that one wrong. I hope they got some other things right. Ed Bar Sim has sent through one pound and 33 pence, right? So 133 is the number. Could mean anything. The decimal point could go anywhere. It could disappear. 133, those are the digits we've got to work with. What does it mean? Right. Well, I suspect if you are like me, Adam, 133, before you even think about looking anything up, jumps out at you as one thing, which is the, the innings that Meg Lanning made when mm. when she sacked Fortress Chelmsford. Remember how um, the English press were big on building up grounds as fortresses? They were like, Edgebaston's a fortress because, I don't know, England had won six games there in 10 years or something. Then they were like, Chelmsford is also a fortress because 
they'd won there for six years running or something like that. There, anyway. there was more of a claim for Chelmsford because I don't think England's women had ever lost a game there mm. until that night against Australia, I reckon. I reckon it was the first yeah. time it had been breached, as it were. But they also hadn't played that many games. There. You know, they played like right. 10 or something, you know. So you're like, okay, well done. You beat the West Indies four times at Chelmsford, you know. <laughs> Fortress! Anyway, Meg Lanning rocks up. Makes 133. This is in a T20 when the women's ashes uh, are, are on the line to be... Australia could seal them or England could, could stay alive in, in the series. 133 off 63 balls, which was the biggest T20 international score in the world at the time for women's cricket, hit seven sixes that night. It was brutal, really. It was, it was, I think it was the last time we saw Meg Lanning just absolutely monster a team because it's almost like now she doesn't really need to. Like, it, it's fine if Meg Lanning makes runs, but she doesn't have to make runs because there are so many other people uh, could do it. I mean, I doubt that Ed pledging in GBP is, is going for this innings, but... For me, as for you, I, I imagine, Adam, that's that's the number that 133 first speaks of. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's right. Um, that was, uh, as you say, she was she batted in a manner that we don't often see, which is uh, her, I mean, she's a risk taker to the extent that she strikes a lot of boundaries, but most of them are, are like Kane Williamson style boundaries with complete mm. control. Joe Root at his best to use comparisons to the men's game. On this night, she was heaving away over cow corner, pulling over square leg with regularity. And yeah, that, that was probably um, probably the night that became clear that England were going to have to make some changes with their setup. And they did. I mean, they, they basically sacked the coach a week later. Um, and yeah, that, that was uh, the innings that, that made it um, clear that, that England were, were so far behind Australia that there'd be no way they could catch them anytime soon. But uh, if it's not that for a pleasure from the UK, I thought it could also be, because 133 just feels like a score, you know, and I know that's a simple way to interpret the number, but it's, it's very score areas. It could be the double. We were talking about England openers, Rory Burns and Dom Sibley each made scores of 133 Burns at Birmingham in 2019, Sibley not long afterwards in Cape Town in, in 2020. And that partnership, I mean, it still hurts my brain to think about it, just to remember watching them bat, let alone watching them bat. The, the uncanny valley sort of version of a cricketer where you're <laughs> like, neither of these guys look like they're batting. They look like you've, you know, you're looking at them through the wrong end of a kaleidoscope or something and everything's a bit twisted and a bit wrong and, you know, it's like aliens have built these cricketers in a simulation to make you think you're at the cricket but they haven't got the details quite right there's something not right there but but there was that moment where it was like oh these the England have a couple of uh, openers for the for the medium term when those guys were making runs but uh, 133 it's a well about as good as it got at that point uh, and also a shout out for Mark Ramprakash who made 133 yep. at the Oval in 2001 his last Ashes test and the one that had the original Imposter, the guy who came out to the middle dressed as an England batsman. Um, oh, cue, yes. Cue yes. many jokes about how, you know, plenty of other players in that series did the same thing. But, you know, he, he came out, I think when Ramprakash was supposed to be coming out to bat at the Oval and this bloke came out and joined Nasser Hussain in the middle and then, um, you know, having dressed himself up and hidden in a toilet near the players' race until it was time to run out on the field. And, and what, weren't those the days, weren't those the nice innocent days when we could have a fun imposter who wasn't a fuckwit with a YouTube channel who was just desperately trying to build some sort of audience on notoriety by crashing every fucking international in every sport. Piss <laughs> off, Javo, you dead shit. Let's get this guy back, the one who he crashed the Manchester United team photo, he crashed the England test team, but he didn't do it for social media. It didn't exist. He just did it for fun. 
good old-fashioned japes. That's what we want back. That's 133 for Ed Barsim. Nicely done, Jeff. Uh, let us know if we've gotten it right. And if you want to be part of our Patreon community and in turn the Discord chat page that I was referring to off the top of the show where there are so many wonderful people enjoying themselves talking about cricket day in, day out, patreon.com forward slash the final word. Pop in a nerd pledge. We'll either deal with it on the weekly show as we did then for Ed Barsim or on our weekly storytime edition of the show that comes out every Oh, I was going to say every Friday night, but somewhere between about Friday night and Sunday morning, depending on <laughs> how organised we are uh, any given week. It's broadly our weekend show and one that we love making. Uh, Jeff, let's take a beat. Uh, and when we return, uh, we'll be talking with England great and your shrub soul. Hi, I'm Ebony Rayford-Brennan, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff this is The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. And our feature guest today, I am thrilled to say, is England champion. 227 wickets for a country. Retired a couple of weeks ago. Anya Shrubsalt, you're joining us for your exit interview. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, let's start where you are at the moment and then go back to the very beginning, as is the custom with these interviews. Let's go to the World Cup final. A few weeks ago, many of us saw you quite emotional before the game and after the game as well and, and put two and two together. Uh, were we right that you'd made your mind up uh, probably before the final that that was going to be it? Um, yeah, well, uh, yeah, I had. If I'm being really honest, I'd kind of I'd thought about it. Um, I've thought about it quite a lot over the last couple of years. I thought about it a lot before I headed out to Australia to be honest for the Ashes and and thought that it would probably be my last tour and kind of as I progressed through that tour and through the World Cup that I knew it definitely was going to be so so yeah those who put two and two together and got four were absolutely right <laughs> I suppose you'd be, you'd be proud of the fact that you kept on contributing uh, all the way through to the final important wickets to I guess recover that slump that you guys had at the start and even wickets in the final so it wasn't as though you were unable to keep doing the job but you just made your mind up that that was enough after 14 years in the national team yeah I think I think as anyone who's played for a while and is is getting towards what they think might be the end I'm sure I have similar you, get, you definitely go through a lot of time about questioning whether or not you're good enough anymore and and kind of all of those things and I would like to think that on my day I even now I'd still be a good enough bowler for international cricket but it's not about um, it's not just about that. There's so much more that comes with international cricket. So I don't necessarily, my decision wasn't necessarily because I didn't think I could hack it um, anymore as a bowler. It was about a whole load of things. But um, yeah, it was nice to, well, obviously not nice to, to lose the final, but nice to, to know that I can still bowl all right. So what does it feel like Anya, at this point? You've had a few weeks now. Uh, you've, you've been used to living this life for so long. Do you sort of look around and go, well, fuck, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> you know, like, what, like have, have you been enjoying having nothing to do or has it been a little bit disconcerting? No, it's been pretty nice, actually. I think definitely um, now kind of as always the way you come back from tour, you have a few weeks off, but a couple of weeks into, you have a couple of weeks off and then a couple of weeks into that, you think, oh, we'll go back into camp soon. Fitness testing's rolling around. You're thinking, oh, I should probably start, um, <laughs> start getting my ass in gear and, and, and doing all of that stuff. So this is probably, I don't know what the girls are thinking, but this is probably the time they're all starting to think about that. And, um, I don't really have to, so it's quite nice, to be honest. There was a line in your statement which said something to the effect of the, the game had passed you by. I was interested in that because, I mean, again, it's like you clearly could and would still be in England's best 11, but 
in yourself you felt that had passed you by. Can, can you elaborate on that and what you meant by that line? Um, yeah, I think I probably meant a lot of things and and trying to sum it up in trying to sum it up in one line. But obviously the game is the game is moving forward, which is absolutely amazing. And I guess I think for me to continue to move forward with the game, I just didn't feel like I had the energy to be able to I guess be able to do that. And you have to, that's the bottom line. There's all, there's more cricket coming, there's more of everything. The game, the bats are getting better, the bowl is getting better, the fielding's getting better, the whole game's getting better. There's more games, there's more training, there's more. So in order to keep keep up with the pace of where international cricket is going would require a commitment that I know, knew deep down I, I didn't have in me anymore. Yeah, that part of it's fascinating because it's like so much of it is the mental side of it, right? It's not whether your body can do it, it's whether you can be bothered to keep doing this, like to keep doing everything that that is necessary. And I suppose, you know, maybe seeing other players coming through with, with that sort of ferocious hunger to get stuck into all of it and you're thinking, well, do I want to keep getting stuck into it? I mean, it sounds like that's kind of where you, where you arrived. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's so much that, um, that comes with being an international cricketer and it, and it is all consuming. Like I touched on earlier, even when you've got time off during that time off, you're thinking, Oh, like I need to start doing this. I need to start doing this, all of those kind of things. So being an international cricketer as it should be, it is an all consuming, is an all consuming thing basically. And like I say, I've watched the youngsters coming through and, and I know, I know as well. The next World Cup is is in three years. There wasn't a hope in hell I was making that. So it's do I stay on for and stay on for a bit longer, potentially get in the way of someone who can make a real impact for England in that in that next fifty over World Cup. And I'd like to think anyone who knows me well enough knows that that's just not the sort of, that's not the sort of person that I am. I just would feel like I was taking valuable game time, valuable experience away from someone who could potentially have a massive role to play in that next 50 over World Cup, which I knew would not be me. I, three years was, was not even in the question. So it just felt like the right time to, to step away. Yeah, that, that's really interesting and, and selfless as well. You, you don't often think of that in, in men's cricket either. I mean, women retiring at age 30 was quite common or even younger than that. Look at Isha. She finished at, was it 26 or 27 a, a generation or so ago? But that was mostly due to financial reasons that the game wasn't um, sufficiently wealthy enough to, to put a roof over your head. That's not the case anymore. But you've got 14 years on the clock because women typically play international cricket earlier. So, I mean, there's that combination of miles on the clock and what you've described before. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that that kind of, I, I always felt like, like you said, women's cricket was kind of an 18 to kind of 28, that sort of bracket. That will shift without a shadow of a doubt, kind of already seeing it. It definitely felt like in, in England, if you can't, if you weren't kind of on a programme or in the England squad by the time you were like 20, then you'd probably, it passed you by, which is just ludicrous, it's absolutely ludicrous that that's the case. So that's definitely shifting already. And I think you'll see you probably won't see as many ridiculously young debutants as, as you used to see. And hopefully it means that players will play for longer because I guess the training's better. People are fitter, they're stronger, they're able to cope with the demands more and they'll probably start a bit longer. And like you said, there's a career. So I think, yeah. And I hope most people, most people go on for a bit longer, but yeah, this has been my entire adult life playing international cricket. And it just felt like, I guess it wasn't something the playing part I, I want to do, but all of it wasn't something I wanted to do anymore. 
Well, I can, I can reassure you if you need some reassurance that 30 <laughs> is very young um, from where we're sitting. Like 30s, 30s, great. 30s, I mean, I didn't know anything about anything by the time I was 30. I'd wasted all of that. I didn't have 14 years playing international cricket. So 30s a great time. Feel good about that. The last couple of years, all the pandemic stuff, I reckon like there was there are some players who maybe it's extended their careers because they've played less they've kind of had uh, time off from the game I suppose a lot of cricketers haven't and and the difficulty of trying to play through that time and all of the bubbles and all of the rest of it like what sort of impact did that couple of years have on you um well, I found it really tough um to be perfectly honest with you it's probably been the two um toughest years of my international career the last two they're not a lot of fun. The bubbles are really, really not a lot of fun. I mean, the first one we did, the first one we ever did in Derby, um, we were literally fenced in to Derby County. There's a travel lodge that overlooks the ground and around the travel lodge and around the ground was fencing. And basically, if you decided to step outside that fencing, you were out. See you later, can't come back. So uh, I... I don't know. I, it's really hard because I obviously understand the people who say like you're represent, you're playing international cricket, you're representing your country, and all of those kind of things. But you tried telling me that anyone would really like to be literally fenced into one area for for four weeks and uh, and that be it. Like it's it's not a lot of fun. So it, it's been really tricky, and I've definitely had some some pretty significant challenges through that, and coupled in with a couple of just like bloody unlucky injuries I had a foot surgery right at the start and then I had two just bloody unlucky injuries which wiped me out for a while so it's been it's been hard and yeah and it's not even the tours we have to go through a period of safe living before we go on the tour so even to go out to this Australia New Zealand that was obviously three months of tour but before that we had to start doing safe living because obviously you've got to do a COVID test to get into England uh, Australia if you mess up that COVID test then like it's just it's just kind of never ending. So it's been, hurdle, it's been hard. Hurdle after hurdle. Yeah. It's been tricky. Um, there's no bottom line about it. <laughs> yeah. And I suppose that'll make this next bit of your career as a domestic player. It's, it's, it's a bit old school. It's like what you would see men do historically when they'd finished your international career and, and still play as a professional. Of course, that, that wasn't available to you in, until now. I know Jenny Gunn is doing it as well, but as a, a former England player, still getting the chance to be involved in the 100 and the other domestic competitions at the other end of the pyramid. Like, you can go up the pyramid, but rarely did you go down as a woman. So I suppose there'll be a degree of joy to your cricket this year, out of the bubbles uh, and back where you uh, did so well on the way up all those years ago. Yeah, absolutely. I think probably in the past I... I had in my head that once I retired, that would be it. I wouldn't want to play cricket again. But the 100 last, I, I absolutely loved the 100 last year. And um, that kind of made me think, well, actually, international cricket is one thing and cricket as a general is another thing. And like, I don't know how long, it might just be this season. It might be a few seasons. Like I said before, I, I think in terms of pure cricketing ability, I'm not at a stage where I need to retire from everything. I think I still have the ability to contribute to to teams that I play in. Um, and like you said, it would be nice just to, to play it with a little bit, I guess, less pressure attached to it.
what we normally do on these interviews, Anya, is we go all the way back to the start of your of your journey in cricket. So now we've kind of dealt with the here and now. We, we might uh, go back to when you are a little kid playing in the backyard with your siblings, uh, Tom and Lauren, and, of course, your old man Ian, who's been a listener to the show, his involvement at the local cricket club in Bath and playing for Wiltshire in the minor counties. And um, I read an interview that you've done uh, describing kind of your mum watching all of you in the backyard going about being so competitive. It, it seems like it was foretold that you'd end up a professional sports person. Yeah, I, I absolutely love my sport. And growing up, I played I played everything that I could. And it's probably one of the things that I've actually missed is, is not really being able to play anything else just because obviously it's too much of a risk with injuries and stuff. But yeah, we had some, me and Tom in particular, we had some we had some good test matches out in the backyard. I mean, I'm trying to, I've got, we've got a tiny, like a really small, like concrete garden, maybe like, I don't know, six metres by six metres. It's not a big garden, um, but we uh, we had a skateboard for stumps <laughs> over and out, obviously. Um, we had guinea pigs and rabbits, I think, and we, we basically had different scoring areas in the in the garden. Back wall was four and six. The, the rabbit hutch was one. The guinea pig hutch was two. We had like a washing line pole. If you managed to hit that, that was three. There were so many rules, and we used to just be out there for hours, me and Tom, and then Lauren would play sometimes and bear in mind like this is when Lauren's a bit older and like Lauren's a pretty good cricketer she's perfectly capable she'd always try and say get two like say she should have two wickets because she was the youngest she's like 14 and plays cricket for like Bath and for Somerset she wants two dismissal but yeah so spent so much time out there playing with them and obviously watching dad and playing down at Bath and things like that so yeah but I just love my sport and cricket just ended up being the one I was best at. Tell me about your parents what are they like? They're great, um, to be honest with you. Um, I wouldn't have got anywhere near where I was without them. We're a close family, um, all of us. And I guess I owe a lot to mum and dad for, for the way that they've kind of, I guess, brought me up and I guess taught me taught me lessons, always kept my feet on the ground, but, uh, but being really supportive um, and kind of, I guess, in lots of ways, let me figure things out for myself when I needed to and, and being supportive when they needed to. Mum, I mean... Mum, bless her, she's come and watched so much cricket. She, I, she still doesn't know a huge... For someone who's watching amount of cricket, she does, like, if you say, like, mum wears mid-off, she's not got a clue. <laughs> um, it's remarkable, but she has just an ability just to kind of be able to to watch and, and not get bogged down by the detail. <laughs> but she's not a great watcher. She spent the I think she spent the World Cup final um, at Lord's um, under a table somewhere because she just couldn't she just couldn't bear to watch. Um, and obviously, Dad's got a cricket background, spent a lot of time... Um, playing and and I've spent a lot of time just watching sport with him, watching cricket, talking about it, and yeah, he'll always be pretty good on the whole at saying, "Do you want my advice?" And normally, normally the answer is yes, or the answer is yes, but you, like, give me, <laughs> you need to give me fifteen minutes here, and then I'll and then I'll have it. But they're incredible parents, and and uh, probably get a lot of people say this, but I honestly couldn't have done it with the amount of support that that I've had from from both of them and still do now. It's a lovely part of the women's cricket world, I suppose, that with not playing in packed stadiums too often that, you know, you're doing your laps and you're walking around and you run into people and, yeah, I suppose your mum and dad have been a big part of that, always there watching you. And 
And that photograph that uh, that you posted the day before the World Cup final in 2017 of, of Ian, uh, or you watching Ian uh, here at Lords Play, was it the Village Cup final or, or something like that? Was uh, that well, club, yeah, club national knockout. Club national yeah. knockout. Sorry, right, and uh, and that became almost an emblem of the progress that women's cricket had made. You as a little girl watching him play here, and the next day, which we'll come to in the fullness of time on this interview, you going on to do what you you did uh, on that famous Sunday afternoon in in July 2017, but. Yeah, just the idea of having, I guess, in your dad, a cricket person who understood the understood the rhythms of the game and was able to provide you that extra layer of support. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that post dad tweeted where he got him more recognition than than anything else. He still goes on about it now, but um, yeah, obviously it was it's huge and just like I said, just to have someone to watch the game with and talk about the game with and and all of those things was massive. And and then like I said, it balanced out by balanced out by mum who couldn't in the nicest possible way couldn't really give a shit and <laughs> and but that was great um it meant that when I phoned home from tour and I was young dad wanted to know how the cricket was going and who was looking good who was doing this and it'd be very very kind of crickety and then mum would be like have you been out to do anything nice like what's the hotel like it just they just kind of balance each other so well so yeah, it worked, worked perfectly. Yeah, okay. I'm always quite relieved when I meet people who don't know anything about cricket. You know, when people ask you what you do and you say, I do, you know, this and that, and they say, oh, sorry, I don't know anything about cricket. I'm like, thank God we can talk about something else um, because we do this. We <laughs> Honestly, my mum, she's watched it for years. I mean, dad played. She watched it years and years and years. <laughs> Not a lot. It's great. That that feels like almost a, a conscious decision. Like I am not going to retain information about mid off. Yeah. Fine. Enough people know about mid off. You don't <laughs> not need important. To. Um, so you you know as as a kid you were and this is a pretty common story with a lot of the women's players of your generation that they were often the first girl playing for the local boys team and that sort of thing. The infrastructure wasn't there. You were up the ranks quickly at at Somerset as well and and playing in in boys cricket at that age. At Tell us about that part of your life. In lots of ways, I think it was instrumental to kind of my development and obviously playing boys cricket and things like that. I Kind of at the time, I just didn't think anything of it because that was, you basically had boys cricket and women's cricket and there was not a lot of girls cricket around. There was the odd bit here and there. So obviously a lot of my time was spent playing boys cricket and I don't know, it just kind of gives you an extra layer of determination to want to do well to I guess to prove that you're there by merit and not anything else so there was the I think my mum heard it more than I ever heard it I think there was the odd comment here and there and but I, I mean I played football as well and and that was way worse at least cricket parents have the have the grace to do it quietly football parents stand on the side literally yelling at their child like about me I'm like guys like we're 11 like what is happening <laughs> like because you can have, I don't know if it's changed now, but you could only play mixed football until you were 12. So it was literally 11, these parents like yelling at their child. Um, so it, you just kind of, I've always been pretty, pretty single-minded and pretty determined. And um, I think much to my mother's annoyance, but I think that definitely helped. Um, yeah, you just have that extra bit of determination for wanting to do well. If there was any sort of suggestion that you were being kind of picked ahead of your time or picked on potential as a 15-year-old, you take seven for against Surrey, and like that's a bit of a a bit of a springboard into the next bit for you. Soon after that, you're playing for England as a 16-year-old, playing overseas, playing uh, in a World Cup 
and all the rest of it. And yeah, there's a there's a line from one of your interviews from from years ago when you talk about you know you're 16 and, and playing international cricket when most of your pals from school are, are thinking about how they're going to get a fake ID to buy some booze. I mean, there's a massive gap between what your experience was in those what can often be quite difficult years, can't they? You know, 16 to 20, let's say, or thereabouts, where you're starting to get a bit of a sense of who you are as an adult, and you, meanwhile, are, are playing in in big kids' world uh, with these accomplished professional athletes, or they weren't professional, but international athletes, and mm. it gives you a, a very different uh, uh, 16 to 20 than, than most of your pals were having. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think it, well, it obviously forces you to, to grow up pretty fast. I think I was playing like senior women's cricket when I was 11 or 12, which is just like, it's just mad. But you have to grow up pretty fast because you're just around adults all the time. And um, I think I've always been... I've been pretty mature for my age. I don't know if that's come from, I guess, from those experiences. And yeah, I had a very different, I had a very different school. And, and maybe that's, that's reflecting the fact that I don't have many, I guess, many school friends at all, because I was just leading a different life, to be honest. I was there to do school. I love school. I love learning. And I really enjoyed that aspect of it. I probably, I went to an all, just an all girls kind of state school in Bath. So I probably didn't really, fit in massively but that never that never really bothered me I was almost kind of just leading a, a different life altogether. So what, what was it like coming into that England dressing room were there other players vaguely close to your age or did they all seem vastly older than you were there people you struck up friendships with quickly or ones you were intimidated by what's it like coming into that as a teenager? Um, I'm being really honest I can't remember a huge amount so it can't have been particularly traumatic um <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, when I got called up, I was, it was kind of, it was kind of on my radar in the sense that I was like, oh, it'd be quite nice to play for England. But I was obviously sixteen, and I'd done okay, but I'd never at that time we had this, we had super fours, um, and I'd done all right at times, but nothing like spectacular, nothing kind of dramatic. And yeah, I still remember uh, it was at it was at Wellington College. Um, I think we had a super fours game, and I got asked to stay behind with Mum because she was there with me and. I sat outside and I was like, oh, my fuck's sake, they're going to have, like, have a go at me about fitness again. And I was just like, oh, like I'm, I'm not here for this. Um, and then Lainey called me in and basically said I was in the squad for the summer series against South Africa and India. And I mean, I drove, me and mum drove out of Wellington College and I was just speechless. It made absolutely no sense to me at all. Um, and it was obviously that, that England team was was incredible. They've been building towards that kind of 2009 with Lottie, Sarah Taylor, Claire Taylor, Isha, Catherine, Holly Colvin, all of those. So there were some who were kind of a bit younger, a bit closer to me, but I mean, they were definitely all 18 and over because I remember them going out in Sydney after winning the World Cup in 2009 and I was like, bye guy. Oh, God. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I was like 17. Uh, you should have got, like, got one of those fake people, IDs that your friends were getting yeah, from exactly. school. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I missed, I missed my opportunity oh, there. No. Um, but they all, they all came back to get IDs so I was like, oh, there's no chance I'm getting in anywhere. Mm. So, yeah, they're all a bit older but that was obviously, I mean, it's a pretty incredible England team to, to go straight into because they were so successful. Yeah, so I mean, you're part of that 09 World Cup squad and you play a game in that tournament but I guess getting that early taste of success having done well at the T20 the previous year too you're kind of being recognised as the most promising cricketer in the land type thing with the awards that went out in, in 2008 but yeah there's the idea of going into a, a successful team with their rhythms and basically them being adults and you being a kid yeah 
like I said, I was, I was, I was very mature, I guess, for my age. So I never really, I never massively felt that kind of, um, that massively. Um, the things that were, we went to a training camp pretty early on um, in my career to India, and I'd never been to, I'd never been to anywhere like that massively as a family when we were growing up. We'd kind of been to Europe and and America on holidays, so I'd never been to. I guess a country like India and experience that. And I think I was 17 when I went there. And I mean, it was uh, the first time you go there, it's a shock to the system and, and obviously being pretty young and things like that. So you just have to, well, I felt like you just have to learn to grow up pretty fast. And I guess luckily I was, I was able to do that and kind of just crack on with it. You mentioned Catherine just earlier, Bronte. Uh, she's she started in two thousand and four, so she she was there. She'd been there for several years by the time you came along. She's still going now. It's pretty unusual for someone to have a lengthy international career that's entirely with another player all, all the way through. But you know, basically, you two opened the bowling together for a decade and and change. Mm. It's I mean, it's an extraordinary relationship. But tell us about it from your perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of I had that realization um, when I was deciding to retire that other than Catherine, I'd been there for everyone else's entire international career, which is mad. But I think we've definitely grown closer as as the years have gone on. Um, I mean, you couldn't, you probably couldn't wish to meet two more different people. We're probably closer in personality traits off the field than we are on the field, um, which I would say is pretty obvious to, <laughs> to see to anyone who, anyone who watches it. She's someone who's, who's fiery and that really works for her. That's how she gets the best out of herself is kind of by being, I guess, quite extroverted, being, being the person that, that everyone sees. And, and that just doesn't, that just isn't me. That doesn't work for me. I kind of need to be more kind of quiet and composed and all of those things. So, but we've really, we kind of at the start of our career we we kept kind of missing each other she'd be injured for a tour I'd be injured for a tour and and it's probably I guess maybe the last five to eight years where we've we've really bowled together quite a lot and and I think well in my opinion formed a pretty decent opening bowling com- combination obviously we complement each other and and we've just really learned to I guess work together and how we can get the best out of each other on the pitch how we can support each other and and that relationship really has grown, I guess, probably over the last five years in particular. Yeah, you mentioned that complementing each other. Uh, I suppose a lot of people uh, look at her being a traditional outswing bowler most of the time, big bag of tricks, but mostly bowling outswing as her stock delivery and you having this to die for in-swinger, like a homing missile uh, from time to time when, you know, when you've got it way outside the off stump and taking out the leg stump, it's a sight to behold. But I love this, the story you've told me in the past about how you found in swing accidentally that it was in the middle of an international game at the 2013 mm. World Cup where you go from being an outswing bowler predominantly as well uh, to becoming uh, the best in swing bowler or I suppose equal with Megan Shute as the most effective in swing bowler in the world and your career changed that day in Mumbai can you tell us that story yeah um, so that 2013 World Cup uh, for some reason I assume it was light at the back end of the day the games were starting at 9am and um so when we'd start the game, there was pretty heavy dew down. So it was literally one of those win the toss bowl. Like as soon as the <laughs> coins landed, you're choosing to bowl, and you couldn't wish for better kind of swing bowling conditions. I reckon it happened. It happened everywhere we played, and 
we were playing against the West Indies and we we're bowling and they had a couple of lefties and I'd always really struggled to lefties. Uh, all my career I've had my actions kind of evolved, but it's always been quite open, quite front on. I've never really been a massively kind of side on bowler. So outswing was tricky. I had to get everything absolutely spot on to be able to bowl. To be able to bowl an outswing. So I was bowling at these lefties and and like just nothing was happening. I just thought, oh, this is I thought this like the perfect conditions to bowl and I can't excuse me, barely moving the ball off the straight. So I just thought, oh I'm just gonna turn it around and just like see what happens just for because yeah, nothing was happening. I thought this this isn't much fun. So I just turned it around, see what happened. That went quite a long way. I was like, oh, this is way more fun. <laughs> this is brilliant. This is what I want to do. And then so I just carried on that game, got a few wickets in that game, and then I kind of had Laney was our coach at the time and I remember speaking to him in, in between the games and going, Well, what do I do now? Like, do I just keep bowling in swing? Do I just keep going with whatever this is or like what am I doing it's like yeah so yeah bowled in swing for the rest of the World Cup it didn't go particularly well for the team but I had a decent World Cup and and yeah just stuck with it and it's much easier for me to bowl to be honest I don't know why I wasted what four years kind of <laughs> bloody away swingers so, so, so no one had suggested maybe turn the ball around before how, how would how would that no 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 Did... I just thought like obviously knew like the principle behind how to bowl away yeah. swing, how to bowl in swing, like wrist position, shiny side, all of that. So I knew all of that. But just, yeah. just didn't do it. I, I love the idea that yeah, I love that it's like dumb luck or not dumb luck. I mean, obviously there was something behind oh, it, but I mean to an extent, dumb extent dumb luck that that is like the, luck, yeah. kind of the turning point in your career. Look at it statistically. You mm. know, you go on to the twenty fourteen T um, Twenty World Cup. You take thirteen wickets, at seven player of the competition. I, don't, I know you don't win the thing, but it, it is your breakout tournament, I suppose. There's central contracts. For the first time that year, you're one of the original recipients of those. You have a brilliant test match at the Wacker where you take seven for 99 in that in that famous Ashes ceiling victory. And, and I suppose we can come to test cricket in a moment, but the fact that you cracked the code by accident and suddenly uh, became one of the most potent bowls in the world. It's a pretty cool story. It's great. <laughs> just wish I'd have just wish I'd have got it four years earlier. Barn a bowl away. I, I, I think it's uh, I don't know. It seems to be quite a um, or it previously seemed to be quite a, a traditional thing that swing bowlers would, would bowl away swing and all of that. But actually, I think particularly in the women's game, there's a huge amount of merit in attacking the stumps, particularly. And we play a lot of limited overs cricket. Test match cricket might be a bit different, but limited overs cricket, there's a lot to be said for, for attacking the stumps. And you see now even those that bowl away swing, lots of them are working on a wobble ball to try and bring the ball back into the stumps and things like that. And I think there's no surprise that obviously... I mean, to my mind, Megan Schutz the, is the best at it. Um, Ibog Kaka has got hundred odd ODI wickets, bowling in swing. It's I don't think it's a I don't think it's a surprise, and I think it's a real strength, particularly in the women's game. And yeah, <laughs> glad it worked. Adam mentioned the the Test match in Perth, which was a cracker, um, twenty fifteen at Canterbury. Not quite such a spectacle, but uh, but you played well in that one as as well. Um, yeah, sorry, that was an understatement. It was an, that was an no, absolute fine, shit worry. tip of the pitch. It was one of the worst surfaces oh, um, that we've ever seen a game played on. <laughs> Fourteen years we mentioned playing international cricket, eight Test matches in that time. I mean, this is something we bang on about a lot on this show, saying that there should be more Test cricket in the women's game. Uh, I mean, 
do you see that? Was that a frustration? Or I guess if you're being served up decks like Canterbury, you're thinking, well, maybe it's a relief that we didn't have to play more test cricket on surfaces like this. I think it's really tricky. I, I think absolutely, yes, we would like more test cricket. Um, is, is um, I guess, is the bottom line. I'm going to assume a lot of it comes down to, um, for not so much of it comes down to money. Obviously, as soon as you put a test match in a tour, that lengthens the tour by, you probably need to have a warm-up game in there. So that lengthens the tour by probably about 10 days. That's 10 days of hotels, foods, all of that for the boards to put on. And, and then you're looking at how much you get back. So I'm guessing a lot of the, the decision-making behind it is is money. I do, to a large degree, agree with, um, I guess, the principle that the best way to grow the women's game was in was probably with limited overs cricket. Having said all of that, I think now the women's game is in a really good position that I think test cricket should come back more. But it is so dependent on on the pitches. I mean, my test debut was at Wormsley and with the best, like, it was dull. Like, it was a really dull game. I had one at North Sydney Oval mm. where Lise Perry got a double hundred, but that pitch had absolutely nothing going for it. Pitch at Canterbury, I know it was a result largely due to how poorly we played, but that was a terrible pitch. But then you have the pitch, you have the test match at Wacker. That was an incredible test match. The test match at... Um, in Canberra, Monica. In Canberra. Um, at Monica, that's what I was going for, was was an incredible test match because it, we had an absolute, we had a belter, we had a really good pitch. And um, I think women's test cricket has been unfair, fairly and unfairly criticised at times. Um how you can expect people to play it really well when they don't practice it or ever play it is beyond me. And then how you expect them to play it well on some pretty shit pitches is beyond me also. But I think I think where the game's at now, that kind of multi-format series um, kind of setup, the more of that we can play, I think the better. Because there's so much education to be had by playing test cricket. You, you just kind of, in a way that you don't get in limited overs cricket. What did you learn? Well, you, you learn how to, I guess you learn more of the tactics of the game. You learn, you have to work out how to kind of, you really have to learn to get people out in, in limited overs cricket. A lot of the time you people get out, I guess, because of the situation, because they've got to try and get eight and over or, or whatever about that. And it also helps with your ability to, to repeat your skill over and over again. Because as a bowler, you bowl, you're trying to bowl your best ball a lot of the time and, in limited overs cricket, if you keep doing that, you get you get whacked. So there's a huge amount to be gained to be gained from it um, if the right conditions are in place. I'm sure that everybody, or well, most people listening to this, would have been nodding along with you talking about uh, your desire for for more of the multi-format series to pave the way for for more women's Test cricket. I just want to jump forward in the story. We talked about one big turning point, you finding the in-swinger. I think it's fair to say another is when Mark Robinson shows up in, in 2016 as the new national coach. You, you guys bomb out of the T20 in India in the semifinals and there's some big structural changes initiated by Mark Robinson. A big emphasis on fitness and big emphasis on you, really, in terms of the way you two work together. I know we spoke at the time about how you felt your personalities were, were pretty closely aligned. He got the best out of you as a, a former skillful bowler himself. You both loved your football, for example. And yeah, it felt from the outside looking in, you may have been professional two years earlier, but when Robbo shows up, Mark Robinson, having coached in, in county land for so long, it took another big step and, and that suited your progression as well. Yeah, absolutely. Robbo was was exactly what we needed as a team. Um, we needed someone with 
with more experience, with more knowledge, with, I guess, knowledge of how to be a professional. We are kind of given these contracts and it's like, right, you're a professional cricketer now. And you kind of don't really know how that works, the ins and outs of it until you've experienced it. Because we all got them for the first time at the same time, it was a little bit, a little bit the blind leading the blind. So obviously Robbo coming in with a wealth of playing and coaching experience, he was he was probably able to, well, he's definitely able to bring a level of professionalism that maybe we didn't have. And he was pretty vocal about some things that we needed to improve. He made some some bold calls and some big changes. And um, I think you'd be hard pushed to say that he got them wrong. Um, and yeah, I, I had a great relationship with, with Robbo and, lots of people will tell you I'm a bit of a like kind of bit of a cricket badger and and he absolutely is as well and and we both love our football and and yeah he made a he made a huge difference um for me so he backed you in 100% in in a range of ways he made you vice captain um you did end up captaining England in in a game further down the track as well and then 2017 I mean it's easy to think about the end of that World Cup and and your great day but the start of the tournament was tough for you you had one wicket in the first four games you from from what we've read at the time you weren't feeling very confident about your game and Robbo was saying you're it you're our you're our opening bowler you're going to do the job and that he had complete faith in you tell us about that point in time yeah I was pretty average to be honest in in the first few games and I think I've got a wicket against South Africa in that game with the ludicrous amount of runs kind of caught at cow as well classic mm. opening bowlers dismissal um, um, and My I mum doesn't really know where that is though so, so you know <laughs> she doesn't she doesn't care um, uh, so I was really struggling and, and basically thought I was going to be dropped and, and all of that kind of thing and, and Robbo basically sat me down and he made me watch he made me watch um, some clips of of my reactions to balls that I bowled. So I didn't see the ball. I just saw the reactions, like kind of my body language and stuff. And I was watching it. I was thinking, oh my God, this is like, I look like an absolute tool. Like, what are you doing, Anya? Like, so he said, right, okay. And then he said, right, now I'm going to show you the clips of all of these balls. And like half of them were like player misses, like they were absolutely perfectly acceptable balls, probably some of the best balls I'd, I'd bowled and I was just reacting in such a negative way because I guess I felt like I was struggling. I was desperate for a wicket and his message basically was, you need to... <laughs> it, he obviously didn't say it in these ways, but you need to kind of get your head out of your ass. It's quite like it will, it will come. And like almost use this as a, as a, as a kind of like go from here what's gone is gone like start again let's let's go from here so it absolutely had a huge role to play in in me kind of turning things around I bowled I think played Australia next I bowled a bit better against Australia and kind of I guess grew into the tournament from from that point on so um yeah I guess that intervention from him played a a big role I love the intersection here between what Robbo's done with you there and your academic training at Loughborough studying psychology, uh, you had a process, didn't you, that you went through um, with your own mm. bowling about you'd, you'd reach the stumps and try and put the ball that you just bowled behind you. But I suppose in the heat of a World Cup, some of that stuff can go out the window. But you'd studied it and you'd written about competitive anxiety and a bit of self-analysis from you in, in that 
in that stage of your academic career, I suppose. So, okay, I guess in an abstract way, you knew what your weakness was, but uh, in the heat of a World Cup, for a moment at least, you managed to lose your bundle a bit. That's quite interesting to me. Yeah, I think uh, I think it happens to anyone, whether you're in your first year or your tenth year. I think there'll be times. I'd like to think I was someone who was relatively self-aware, but I guess when things aren't going, when things aren't going well, then then you start to doubt yourself and all of the things that kind of hold you up and hold you in good stead, you kind of start to forget about them. I had, I had a very a bit of a similar experience in in this World Cup that we've just had. I felt like I was struggling a bit in the first few days and the first couple of games and felt like I was going to get dropped. And I'm definitely someone who, I guess, starts to very much tend towards the negative rather than the positive. And it took a, a little bit of a chat from Lisa to be like, look, you like... It's not as bad. Um, it's not as bad as you think, etc., etc., etc. So, I think and that's after 14 years of international cricket. You'd think I'd be a bit more immune to it, but I think it happens to everyone at some point. And sometimes you can get yourself out of it. Sometimes you need a coach or someone else to say, "Look, come on, it's not as bad as you think it is," or, or whatever it might be, and, and pull you out of that. How important is it that you've had that, I, I talked about you studying psychology, but having that other string to your bow that you could kind of at least understand, theoretically at least, uh, the pressure of international sport and, and trying to, I suppose, divorce one delivery to the next and not getting too in your own head. I, I know you're explaining how you have before, but taken as a whole across your long career, how important was that foundation? Yeah, absolutely. I think definitely when I was younger, I was quite, and if petulance is the right word, but I'm going to use it. Um, and if I bowl a bad ball or, or whatever, it can affect me. For I, I just kind of used to carry it, used to carry it with me. And a bad ball became a bad over, which became a bad spell. And uh, and similar, if I had the bat in hand, even in the nets and in training and stuff like that. And and that's just no good to anyone. It's tiring more than anything else. So you, through various things, you kind of learn to to ride that wave a bit more and and everyone's human no one's perfect you can evolve bad balls it's if you don't there's something wrong with you or you haven't played enough the 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 peak of the wave though is the end of that world cup and that's that's a situation where you don't lose your shit you know it's the opposite you you're you're supremely calm it seems from the outside anyway i remember being there watching that final spell was was one of the most exciting things we've ever seen. I can't imagine being in the middle of it, uh, five for 11 in the space of 18 balls at the back of that run chase. And I particularly remember when Poonam Yadav hits the ball to Jenny Gunn at mid-off who drops it. I think it was when we were talking to Claire Connor and she said when that happened she wasn't even worried. She just said, oh, you'll get the wicket next ball. Like She just felt like you were unstoppable in that moment. What was it like for you in the middle of all of that? Well, with that incident in particular, I genuinely was absolutely fine. They still needed nine to win, number 11's on strike, not face the ball. And we've just taken, as a team, we've just taken six for whatever. I mean, if you're not, if there's a mo- if you're not going to be confident in that one moment, I don't think you ever are, <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you. It's obviously a bit different if it's, like three to win, four to win, because you think, well, she could just nick this and that's that's four. But they still had nine runs to get, which in the context of that game was was just kind of was enormous. I mainly feel sorry for Jen because that kind of seems to be the thing that's to remember from that World Cup. And she had a like a bloody brilliant World Cup. Like she put in some 
some unbelievable match winning performances for us that I think went a bit unnoticed. And even in that final, she got like six or seven overs for about 10 or something ludicrous like that. And I feel, and with the bat against Australia, Australia, South Africa in that semi final was a great innings. Um, and she did that for us all the World Cup and her whole World Cup to remember by that, <laughs> that one bloody ball. But I was genuinely fine. I just probably from a little bit further out, I just thought once we'd kind of turned the game, I just thought we were going to win. For the uninitiated who may not quite know as much about your career or women's cricket as Jeff and I do, I mean, let's put it in perspective. They needed 40 runs to win. They had seven wickets in hand. Jeff mentions that you take five for 11 in 18 balls, six for 46 all up after getting one out early on. Um, stumps everywhere at the end. One of the most iconic images of the 21st century in cricket ends up on you know the front of wisdom. And... I mean, I guess it's even now probably hard for you to understand how important that was. The packed Lords, the way it sounded and felt that way. It was an incredibly special day. It'll, it'll probably go down as the defining turning point for women's cricket. I mean, have you given yourself ever a proper opportunity to, to consider how important your role has been in the history of women's cricket and the intervention that day? Or, or are we still some years away from you being able to properly appreciate that? We're probably still a little while away, I think. <laughs> both know me well enough particularly you Adam that it's just I don't know I in some ways it makes me fit like it makes me feel uncomfortable I'm obviously incredibly proud and to be part of an England team that um won that World Cup there and and that's probably more how I think of it as as being part of a as being part of that team as opposed to anything that necessarily I did I obviously know that I had a day out at Lords but without (laughs) most other people we might not even have got to Lords because I sure as hell didn't contribute to some of it. So apart from the winning um, runs in the semi-final, let's not forget that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but even that, I just I just a load of glory off a pretty average ball. There was so much good other stuff that came in. I just walked in and hit a four. But yeah, I, I think I probably at the moment am, am more just kind of looking over the I guess my whole career and and I am I guess proud of what I've done and what I've achieved and and but obviously that day without a shadow of a doubt is is best day I've had in my career and yeah I guess I'm really proud that I was able to contribute we got that out of you in the end uh, that was a masterclass in self-deprecation <laughs> like oh no no I just I just I just whacked a bad ball I just I'm lucky enough to get on the end of a few that's what you're saying in in football I mean actually it matches up with so Tanya Aldred wrote when writing about you in wisdom said of that final moment that uh, not flustered because she's always been slightly out of place girl in a boys team teenager in a women's team introvert in team of extroverts um that does seem true, but massive self-deprecation skills as well. <laughs> I try. There's a moment where, I mean, press fast forward about seven or eight hours and I remember it was you, me and Vish at, like, I don't know, two in the morning or something and we were hectoring you to get your medals out of your bag. Your so you're like, where's your medal? Where's your medal? I was like, it's in my bag. Don't worry, guys. Out. Get it out now. <laughs> we want to see it. We want to put it on. Or, you know, probably a bit unprofessional as a couple of journalists who've been covering your career, but whatever. It's a World Cup final. It's, it's late. We've all had a few drinks. And so you did. And uh, I remember... Uh, pumping you and saying, you've got to go back to your room and write down everything that's happened today. And the next day when Vish interviewed you, you, you said that you had, that you'd taken some notes about the day so you didn't ever kind of lose that, lose exactly what had happened in your own words at that time. I just wondered whether you've had a chance to to pull those out and, and to and to think again in your own words uh, what happened on that special day in, in July 2017. Uh, not yet, no. I think my memory is still good enough to, um, I've still got a pretty 
clear memory and I've, I've had the odd thing. I can't, I can't remember when it, it must have been during lockdowns when there was no sport to watch on the TV. We, Sky did a kind of a rewatch of the final with um, a few of us on that. And that was actually, I was on, me and Heather did the kind of back end of that game. And um, yeah, it was, it was really cool to, I guess, to watch it back and, and still really feel some of the emotions. Do you do you cry when you watch it? A lot of people a lot of people cry when they watch that. People I know who who talk of that being a a game they get quite emotional watching back because I understand the significance and all the rest of it. Does it have that? I know you've watched that ball and that piece of dreadful Sanjay Mandraker commentary a gazillion times. <laughs> but do you get emotional at watching it yourself now, years later? Um, I wouldn't. It hasn't it doesn't make me cry, but I definitely kind of feel that kind of, I guess, emotion and, um, of watching it. And I think it's probably more goosebumps than anything else. Mm. And, and being, and I can kind of still hear the noise when that, that kind of final wicket was, was taken. And, um, yeah, like I said, my memory of that, my memory of games and stuff that I've played in full stop is pretty good. I can remember the most random things. It's entirely pointless, but my memory of that day still is still pretty good. There was a bit going on that night. So you've won the World Cup. We've already talked about that. There's the, the great story that Catherine and Nat tell about basically hooking up for the first time after the World Cup on the balcony of Lords or something like that. Tammy Beaumont goes up to the... Uh, I think Tammy Beaumont goes up to the balcony as well and, and declares that she'll become the number one player in the world or something like that. I mean, you all had different experiences from that one night. It'd, it'd make a good book or a, or a good film or something like that. Yeah, absolutely it would. I think loads of people have got stories to tell from that Heather Knight oh, food poisoning yes that's right of um, course, yes. so she was ill Alex Hartley may or may not have got a little too drunk um, <laughs> sorry Al yeah it was just an incredible the whole it was just an incredible evening I I had some um, friends who had who had come to watch so I popped out of the dressing room and went into the um, went into the tavern and I mean I don't think I've ever hugged so many people in my life people just came <laughs> like literally came up to me like can I give you a hug I'm like yeah cool <laughs> Like go for gold. Are um, you a hugger? And just actually bumping into a few. Uh, I am, yeah. Mainly with people that mm. I know. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm stranger a stranger hugger. I'm a spontaneous no. hugger. No, not really. But that's fine. It's exceptional circumstances, so it's all good. But actually, it was really nice just to see. I guess see my friends, see some people who I've played with or played against, and just I guess the atmosphere in in the tavern was just it was round and it was just incredible with people, obviously pretty elated what was it like i mean a couple of years after that mark robinson's gone gets pushed out of the job after the the ashes in in 2019 was that time for a change or was that something that you found hard that a coach that you got on with so well uh, was out of the job i guess it was maybe a sign of we just weren't used to it, it was maybe a sign of the increased professionalism and, and obviously there was more pressure on us but there was more there was pressure on coaches and stuff like that and and we'd underperformed and ecb had decided we needed to go in a different direction so I was obviously really gutted because I had such a good relationship with Robbo and and I still speak to him now he still rings me up every now and then I I dropped him a message before my retirement was announced just to say I guess thank you for everything everything that you've done because he had a huge um he had a huge impact on on my career and, and obviously Lisa's come in now and and she's a, a different coach to Robbo definitely goes about things in a different way and I think in lots of respects it's kind of suits where the team is at now, I think Robbo inherited a, a squad that was very young, was very unprofessional, needed a, didn't have a lot of knowledge about the game, needed a huge amount of guidance and 
and support and obviously over the years that group has kind of stayed together and we've grown and we've got a lot of senior players now and it can probably be a bit more I guess player led for want of a better phrase and and that's definitely Lisa's style. Yeah, it feels like there's that there'd be a I suppose a tinge of frustration that that team from 2017 have had more downs than ups. Probably fair to say in in the five years since. I mean, you you made a World Cup final in 2018. That hat trick you took, I recall, uh, during the, the group stage of that tournament. But Australia just too strong. There's the the Ashes debacle in 2019 that, that Jeff touched on. There's the the World Cup in Australia in in, in 2020 where you you know you're a washout away from getting to play in front of 87,000 people at the MCG against Australia. I mean, it's a bit of a a story of what if between the years of say 2017 and, and when you finish up in 2022? Yeah, absolutely. I think we've been there or thereabouts, but never quite able to to get over the line. And I think that's, I think that's no, there's not necessarily, um, I don't quite know what word I want. We've obviously come against as well a, an Australia team that is seemingly at the absolute peak of its powers and, um, there is clearly a gap between everyone and Australia. I think it would be stupid for anyone to try and deny that that's the case, but that is, it's become pretty, it's been obvious for some time, but that gap is definitely there. And I guess we've got to, we've got to work hard to close that gap. And I think obviously we're doing the right things in terms of the domestic structure and all of that, but, but people have got to be patient. That's probably still three or four years off. I guess, really having an impact. You're kind of starting to see it now with more players, I guess, in the kind of selection mix. And it's those sort of things that will really push the team forward. Yeah, and I suppose when when you're starting to go on that roller coaster, it's exactly the same time when there's this outpouring of affection for your team after the 2017 World Cup. People hearing about women's cricket for the first time. I mean, you know, the MBE at Buckingham Palace, International Player of the Year. You're on the cover of Wisdom with that image that, that we referred to before. Actually, it's the it's probably the, the wrong photo, isn't it, on the front? You're holding the trophy. When it probably should have been with you um, spread out like uh, Freddie Flintoff was a, a generation before. You're on a question of sport. I mean, you know, the idea of an England women's cricketer making it onto a, a platform uh, like that. And again, Jeff's touched on your keenness to, to have the spotlight away from you but at that particular juncture everybody wanted a piece of you and it happened so quickly I mean have you had a chance to to consider what an amazing uh, wave you're able to ride through that six or nine months or so even though it wasn't going too well on the field yeah absolutely I think I think obviously not just for me for everyone it kind of there was a definite kind of shift after that after that World Cup and I guess I think <sighs> It was it was really tricky because a lot of the a lot of what happened was a lot of the stuff that you said was was absolutely amazing and but at the same I obviously like I said before you know me quite well it kind of makes me feel a bit uncomfortable for want of a better word so I think I guess that's where I guess I've got my mum and dad to to thank massively for always kind of not that I think I need to be grounded but for always keeping me grounded and and for me a lot of what happened afterwards was actually to be able to experience it with them they mum and dad were able to come to Buckingham Palace with me I was really lucky to get to go to Wimbledon and mum came with me and I kind of felt like that was not not me repaying them as such but being able to experience those things with with the two people that had helped me most through my career it kind of felt like a I don't know almost like a, a thanks to them 
<laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's them, it's them getting the return on investment of emotional investment, I suppose. In that I way, hope so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think I think you paid them back. But <laughs> your your career, I mean, it perfectly spans this incredible period in women's cricket because you go from the end of the full amateur era to now the era of full professionalism vast amount of change clearly the the biggest amount of change we've ever seen in the sport across the course of a decade or so um you've you've had front row seats to it all where do you see the women's game going from here and and what have you made of uh, just the the vast amount of change that has gone on it's been amazing and, and I feel incredibly lucky, I guess, to have been involved at, at a time of, of such change. It's been, I guess, in, incredible to be a part of. And I just, I mean, I don't think we're even close to, to where it can go, to be perfectly honest with you. Obviously, globally, you have countries ahead of other countries. And, and that I guess that's the the big, actually been one of the amazing changes. Probably when I started in 2009, there was you kind of had England, Australia, New Zealand and then that kind of became a bit more England and Australia. It almost became a little bit of a foregone conclusion that those two teams were going to reach the final but you kind of felt like coming into this World Cup that there were so many teams that could go well and potentially win it and that's such a good, that's so good for the women's game. It, for a global game, I don't think it's, it helps at all to have two dominant countries, one dominant, like I know Australia are, are really dominant at the moment but I just don't think that helps the game at all. So it's really good to see, I guess, more countries around the world putting more money into women's cricket and, and supporting it more because that's that's what the game needs, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, and that is happening. Potentially, you'd like it to happen a bit faster in some places, but I'm sure there are reasons for that that I have no idea about. And I think, obviously, the game's growing pretty well in this country and it's just about, I guess, keep pushing it and keep pushing it and... And having more having more professional cricketers is it can't be a bad thing. Yeah, we, we go from this time when there's sort of not enough cricket, even just two years ago through the pandemic, unusual circumstances as they were. But now there's just so much going on. I'm, I'm going to the fair break competition in a couple of days from now, and that's emerged from seemingly nowhere as far as so many talented cricketers to all be in the same place for a fortnight in a well remunerated competition and, and all the rest of it. The the Q Super League becoming the hundred the Women's Big Bash League, the chance for a Pakistan Super League next year, the, the Women's IPL, the Caribbean Premier League. I mean, it is, it's popping up everywhere, more and more cricket. And I wonder whether you might see that as just a, you know, you've expressed already your the, the, the challenges you've had towards the end of your career, whether we might need to just pause and think about sustainable growth or something like that. And maybe that could be a concern for the future. That if we do it all at once, that, that maybe some people might get lost along the way, some version of that. Yeah, potentially. I think obviously the 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 comps that are the kind of domestic comps, I think are a really important part of I guess each country growing their game within within their country um, and having the kind of the best players against the best players in that's how you're gonna if you think about it as as each individual country that's a, that's a, a major way that you're gonna grow. Obviously. One thing that's start already started to happen a bit is, I guess, the competition the competition between international and domestic comps kind of overlapping and things like that. And I think um, I know there's been a lot of talk about it, but if these competitions are going to pop up, it's it's going to happen. There isn't enough time to play all of these competitions, have everyone available, and play international cricket. For my mind, international cricket should always take priority, and I think it's just going to become the norm in the same way that with a big bash, 
or with any comp you have some overseas players come and they can play six or seven games and then they that's just kind of going to become the norm but it's definitely something that takes some getting used to I mean even this tour we've just had is three months is the longest tour I've ever been on and like you definitely felt it by the end and that will become more of the norm but it takes some getting used to you're free now you're you're out of it 2016 you adam did an interview with you and you said you wanted to go to america and go on a big road trip when you finished cricket um are you still gonna do that maybe america's less attractive as a place to go to now i don't know yeah, um, yeah possibly are, are, are you what are you gonna do now that now that you're out now that you've escaped what are you gonna do with your life um small question i know. Uh, don't know, to be honest. I've kind of escaped straight into cricket season. So, um, <laughs> so, so nothing for nothing for the summer. It should have just been announced, so I can tell you. So I've um, moved domestic teams. So I'm, I've moved from Western Storm to Southern Vipers. So I was offered a, I was offered a player a playing coach role um, at Southern Vipers. Um, I guess to look after the seamers down there and, and play my domestic cricket. So but I'm really looking forward to that opportunity to work with Lottie. He's obviously my first captain when I started and someone I've I've is a really good friend of mine, is someone who's massively supported me throughout my career and things like that. So yeah, I guess dipping my toe in the water a bit with a bit of coaching and with some seamers and, and I'm really excited about that and then we'll kind of see from there. That is quite interesting that again I, I kind of touched on this before, but when men finish their careers historically, they can do one of a few things, some going to the media and others go and become a coach and uh, it feels like there is that pathway uh, for you if, if you saw fit so you, you think you might stay in the game as a coach for the medium to long term or, or or you might be the sort of cricketer who in 10 years time is I don't know living somewhere else and having a completely separate career like what do you think is more likely for you? I think it's more likely that I'll stay in cricket or at the very least stay in stay in sport I can't see me going a million miles from that I, I don't know kind of never say never but yeah, definitely for the kind of short to medium term, it will it will still be in cricket, and I guess I'm really fortunate that I've got this opportunity. And I think it's one of the, one of the other things that's so great now about the about everything is is there are I guess potential career options for people who have who have retired, whether it's still be playing, whether it be helping coaching well in domestic teams, whether it be commentary or all of those kind of things. That's definitely something that's become more noticeable. I guess in the women's games, it definitely felt like before you kind of retired and, and that was it. And it's like, good luck, go well, be free. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so I'm, I'm, like I said, still going to play and start doing a bit of coaching and, and kind of see how that goes. It's like the end of White Fang where they, you know, they take all the cricketers out to the mountains <laughs> yeah. and go, get out of here, go on, you're free. <laughs> Run free. <laughs> <laughs> well, Anya, it's uh, the, the fact that you might stay in the game is a great thing uh, for the sport. You've made a massive contribution uh, across 14 years playing for England. I'm sure that'll extend for however many years now in domestic cricket and as a coach. And it's been a th- privilege from our side of the table uh, covering your career in, in, in its various forms. Uh, congratulations on all that you've achieved. And thanks for joining us today for your exit interview. And uh, yeah, see you around the traps. Thank you very much for having me. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. 
Final word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, as we say goodbye for another week. Jeff, I recorded that interview, as you can probably tell behind me, sitting in the commentary box at Lords, which felt appropriate given it's where we were here in the media centre all those years ago, watching Anya do what she did. And it was nice that she was able to, after some drilling down after a while there, kind of acknowledge that she knows, deep in her heart, she knows what it meant, not only to her, to, but to, I guess, many, many, many people around the game, involved in the game, on both sides of the fence. It makes a lot of sense that she is uncomfortable with that because it's a lot to carry as a person. You know, you're just you're just one individual person who is, you know, in your own mind, nobody special. You happen to be good at something, and and that's playing cricket. But I, I mean, I remember, as you say, being up there watching it that day and seeing the reaction, particularly of of most of the former. England women's players who were up there in the commentary box who were all bursting into tears at the end of that game, you know, Isha, Ebony, the, the lot. It, 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 was so, it was so laden with meaning on that side of the boundary row. But I think being the one person who has actually done that thing, you'd sort of be thinking, well, I've just done what I do, which is run in and bowl and, and, and it happened to you know, take wickets this time and other times it hasn't, but sort of being told that you've changed the world just by doing something that you've done for years and years, it would be a difficult thing to, to, to try to accept. It would feel, it would feel sort of uh, glory hunting to be embracing that significance, I suppose. So I can understand why, why she sort of says, oh, well, I'd, maybe I'd rather not think about it like that. Just another day at the office kind of thing. There were 180 million people watching that game of cricket. It was the most watched game in 2017, full stop, no caveat. No men's game, no you know, global event, no whatever. That was the game that people watched more than any other, um, which, yeah, just seems staggering that we had the great privilege to be here for it. I mean, even now I, I get emotional thinking about it, just knowing that, um, and it's not about us, of course it's not about us, but to have witnessed something like that, like a turning point in history, and it was. So, And that Anya now gets to go off and have another career if she wants in cricket or, or do something else. And, yeah, I, I love the idea that she was able to work it out herself as well. She didn't need to tap on the shoulder. She didn't need someone to say, well, you know, you're going to the World Cup or you're pulling out. She, she worked that out herself that she can now, as... Daniel and I said in our long conversation about the England women's team a month ago, a month ago or so, um, that will her retirement provide space for a number of players to to be there in three years' time and have a better chance to bridge the gap to Australia. So yeah, it's selfless too. And maybe it provides space for Catherine Brunt to try to keep going if if she wants to see if she can do another three years. And you know maybe she can, maybe she still will be able to to bring something to that team in that time. We shall see. But yeah, lovely to have that chat and nice to see Anya Shrubsole smiling and and happy down the other end of the screen. And if you uh, listen to that and you want to watch it back, we had it on video, so we'll be able to pop that on YouTube, and you can see me in my um, in my cricket writers club tie, about to go across the road for the uh, the AGM there in the pavilion, uh, and Anya talking to us, uh, which was yeah a joyous hour or so. Uh, on the final word, that's where we'll close our show for this week. Thank you for everyone who contributes to what we do on Patreon, Patreon.com forward slash the final word uh, to the team at Woodstock Cricket and everybody. Who listens to us week in, week out. We'll be back for story time on the weekend. This has been the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lennon. Until then, goodbye. See ya. I had to go about it.